0: Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 259 and part two of my conversation with UTEP Professor of Percussion, Andy Smith. Let's get right to it. Last week on part one, which I hope you've already listened to, we got to hear about Andy's work at UTEP, his many experiences throughout his professional career, growing up in New England, and his time at Berkeley College. This time in part two, we'll get to his time at UMass, his years as a student and professor at Middle Tennessee State, his doctoral years at Indiana, his relationship with another well-known percussionist, Amy Smith, and our standard final segment. So here we go. We recorded this portion of the interview over Zoom on August 12th, 2021 and it begins right now we've, we've already covered some of this but you were familiar with the program like relatively well right before you you ended up going there yeah somewhat in
1: fact some uh, kind of neat like overlapping UMass Berkeley and, and that story. Berkeley would do a spring percussion festival that was a week long. And at the end of the week on Saturday, the UMass Drumline would come every other year and do a joint thing. So while I was a student at Berkeley, just attending the festival and all, UMass Drumline came and they did a joint piece. I think that one was uh, like something on. Bill Bailey, once you come home, Bill Bailey, and it was like a swing thing, so they played with one of the big bands, big jazz bands at Berkeley, and then they threw in like three major drum set artists, and then of course that would turn into like a trade fours throwdown with these heavy drum set artists. Having been to that event two or three times, I don't know if I remember straight which big guys were at which event, but... But I know for sure, like John J. R. Robinson was there, uh, uh, Will Will Kennedy, who's one of definitely one of my heroes, was there. Dennis Chambers was there on one of those, and then Casey Sherrell, who later became faculty at Berkeley. So this thing's happening, and then so I'm I'm observing that right as a Berkeley student, and Nick Angeles then who's one of the greatest rudimental snare drummers of all time and a close friend of mine. He did his solo. So this is spring of 1993. And in 1992, Nick won the DCI individual solo. So he's got this solo called Trainwreck. It's published at Tap Space. And actually, one of my freshmen played it for me in an audition and like won. Anyway, so Dante did that, my student. But Nick plays this solo, and my mind was completely blown. I'm like, you know, I've got this interest in it or whatever, but I had never seen anyone play like that. And I said to one of the faculty, Dave Bose, who was a Berkeley faculty who was into the rudimental tradition, and I said to him, I was like, that very thing. I was like, I didn't know that there was people that could do that. Nick's playing is incredibly physical and passionate. On top of being very virtuoso, completely blown away. Like, yeah, mind blown. So then I told you I was a year out in between, but that was one of the, whatever, I think times when I saw the group, I interacted with Tom and, and the group a couple of times, even teaching. One time I remember I was teaching a high school group and like wrote them like a winter production or something and Tom was like a dud and clinician and... And he asked me for my score he was into it I'm, do you mind can i keep this score and put it in my library i'm going what does tom hannah want my score for right but yeah so as i was telling you earlier i end up with a year in between just because i ran out of money and it's like the summer okay so i do that year i'm teaching i'm doing this and that so in the spring I've kind of made up my mind. I call Tom Hannum. In those days, actually, there wasn't email yet, or at least unless you were like a CEO of a company in New York. You know, there wasn't email, none of that. You cold call them in their office. So I called Tom Hannum. I'd say, here's the deal. You know, here's who I am, and I'm interested in coming. And they did and still do a spring techniques class. So they're twice a week. The drum line is rehearsing. Sometimes there's music that's being prepped for the next year. But a lot of fundamentals, language of music, rudiment ritual, you name it. You know, guys who have matriculated out of the group are teaching, getting mentored, writing, teaching. And, of course, that's getting tied into whatever Panem and Colin them. If not, we're doing it in the summer in terms of some of the talent. Uh, so I come up, he's he invites me to that. So I go to the class, and we're learning uh, an arrangement of Blue Rondo a la turque uh, by, uh, oh God, this just came up recently, but jazz singer, really known for scatting and he's got like a famous edition of that tune. I'm um, totally drawing in a blank, but there's a middle section to that version, Dave Rubeck's tune on this record. That's like in 12-8, it's like 12-8 jazz. He's scatting over it. Steve Gadd is the drummer. It's hyper-syncopated and like very derived out of like Afro-Cuban rhythms. And Colin McNutt, super talented arranger now with Boston Crusaders. Yeah, B A C Yeah, Colin. He writes an arrangement of that material. So, you know, I stepped into UMass in the spring, not a student yet, and we're learning this material, which is right up my alley, of course as a jazz drummer who's trained and can read and also, So we do this class, and then like the next week, and, and that group is famous for, or in my memory, quick memorization. When we did the camps, band camps, at UMass, you rehearse, or at least in that day, 7 a.m. till 10, 11, 12, 1 a.m., and then they give you a new chart to learn for the next morning, and you better have it 100%, right? <laughs> so that was how the group operated when I joined. And uh, we're learning the chart. And, like, we come back the next week, and, like, I've got it memorized because I'm not in school, right? Like, the rest of the guys are full-time students. I'm, like, working a part-time job teaching a lesson or playing some gigs. I got time, and I just I memorize it. They come back, you know, I've I've got to memorize, or like some of these other guys are like, who's this character showing us up? I mean, we became fast friends, but and uh, that was a moment that impacted me for life, you know, you you remember these moments, and and Tom goes he says something to the class, like if you want to learn how to be a professional do what he does. That live that, you know Resonates with me, of course. Anyway, so then, yeah, and then Tom invites me to join the Star of Indiana, which at the time was brass theater, that period developing what became Blast. So, you know, long story short, I prepare, I prepare for UMass. I don't end up doing brass theater in 94, but I come, I do UMass, and then the next year, 95, 96, I do Star as well. You While know, well, I'm not into this. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So that in that period of my life I'm just absorbing everything. I'm getting to play jazz big band and combo. I'm studying gospel Percussion, Marimba, et cetera, symphony with Peter Tanner, Jazz vibes with uh with Dave, who I forgot his last name the other day, still don't remember it. Haven't improved in that area. And uh, you know, the marching percussion side, but But what that UMass Hannum's program is about is a great deal in terms of learning what you're capable of, learning culture. You know, It, it was rigorous, but at least I loved to do it. And I never hesitated, and there was never a rehearsal I wasn't excited to be at. I also learned from Tom. As a mentor, as a culture builder, how important it is to touch base with every member. I'd pass him in the hall on on the stairway in the old chapel where we were housed at that time, and he would stop and he'd say, "I'm glad you're here." So I I try to pass that on, you know, and it's meaningful because he'd be on you in the rehearsal, right? He'd be on the group, and but um. You know, the rehearsal's over. I'm glad you're here. How's your day going? It just happened to be perfect for me. And I would have marched, participated wherever Hannum and McNutt were at the time in, in the core of the MIMA's crew. It just happened that it wasn't competitive DCI at that time when I came on board. But for me... Because I came up, you know, as, since I was a tween, kind of in more professional environments, here's the music, the, the performance is tomorrow, you know, or it's now, you'll hear it, you know, like that was my experience or, or sight reading the book to a, to a musical, um, which is a far stretch from, you know, competitive marketing settings. In, in where there's one program, right? And a lot, a lot, a lot of repetition. So at, at the Brass Theater Star of Indiana experience at that time, we got a full-on drum corps experience in terms of how it would run, the expectations. But then we did like one or two almost drum corps programs within a two-hour production, during which I also played some big band drums. I also played drum drum kit. Just me and, and Canadian Brass on some material. And then we're playing symphonic percussion. I got an orchestral excerpts education through the Winter Camps program of Star of Indiana. That was largely Jim um, Ancona doing that. Besides our materials or performance materials that were prepared for camps, we would prepare orchestral excerpts. And the first night of the camp during during that time period that Friday night was an audition. We essentially played an audition, we did, at every single camp with prepared materials and orchestral excerpts. And then Jim would take us through that. And he would teach us all Stevens grip, you know, and techniques. So like we got a mini literal, like mini Stevens camp through the camp, through the winter program of what would be drum horrible was brass theater. So I cherished that. I think it it was perfect for me. And then I did a year teaching at the Crossman with Tom and and Colin and and my my peers at the time,
0: which was also awesome. Back to you, Pete. (laughs) (laughs) When that period is done and you have your degree, Um, Do you go to MTSU after? That's right. Yeah. Right. So I met. And and how do you, how are you aware of that program?
1: Basically, having met Lalo through Tom Hennam. So I went to PASIC that year, like my last year at UMass. I didn't really know. and, And one thing, it was totally different from now, right? Like there was no YouTube you weren't going online and getting exposed like you are now. Right. And Peter Tanner was not exposing us. That just wasn't where he was at in his career or the time period. I mean, I hadn't been to PASIC until that my last year at UMass. So, I mean, even at that time, there were all kinds of great schools you could go to. I, I wasn't didn't really know what I was going to do, but I thought that an assistantship and a master's sounded like a great idea, defer the out-of-state undergraduate loans while mm-hmm. I get my feet on the ground, which is exactly how it went, and it was perfect. And I wanted to gig and be playing, so Nashville made sense. That PASIC happened to be in Nashville. Lalo was, was talking to Tom Hannum, and I was like in the room, and he was going. I need a TA, and Hannah was like, talk to this guy, and that was that was just how that happened. So I went, and, of course, I went to visit an audition, and while I was there, Lalo had a, a gig with his professional salsa group in Nashville that was called Orquesta MFA, uh, with Manny Yanes, who's a Cuban bass player. He was also the bass player with Patty LaBelle and Robert uh, Robert Palmer at the time. Um, so that that band was happening and you know I got fortunately got to hear that and get downtown to Nashville while doing a school visit. And uh, you know I had I had a lot to offer in terms of I also having studied with Ed Uribe and having a love for Apple Cuban music and things while I had a salsa group at the university. so I fit right into that. There was a need to run the drum line. And there was a music city to move to. And that was what happened, you know. The last uh, financial support I got from my parents was they helped me drive down, like we drove two cars. And my dad bought, I was on tour with Crossman. And I actually, I'm going, Dad, I'm not going to, I'm going to like net zero with my drum corps tech pay, but I'm going to need a car. <laughs> So, like, he buys me a car for $2,500. I think it was a Subaru Legacy with, like, Mm -hmm. 130,000 miles or something. So, that was the last uh, financial support from my parents. I used, like, a credit card for the first two months, you know, and, and, like, I bought furniture and groceries, and I had a good stipend and, like, taught a drumline and a couple extra lessons and gigs. And, you know, it only took a couple of three months to get rid of the credit cards. And, uh, yeah, never never saw debt again until I had a mortgage. Well, that's not quite true. I'm tangenting, but this is wisdom for, for the kids out there. Amy and, and I, my wife, also a musician, also without a state undergrad uh, loan. So we had about 40 grand together in loans for undergraduate study. Both had graduate degrees, like paid for through assistantships. She's smarter than me. She had a fellowship at uh, Susan Boulder. But what we did is we people were like we get married. Let's buy a house and a car and like we got to live a certain way. No, we lived like students for about four years, taking every gig, paid off the forty thousand, spent ten thousand going to Ghana with Pascal Young through WVU. At the time uh, and save 10 grand to do a down payment on the house whatever else bought our cars with cash we always bought our cars with cash so um, that's how we chose to live
0: so sorry about that that's no no that's like, that's important i because i was wondering i mean i feel like it's important to kind of um to start fig- like I, I was wondering at what point Amy starts to figure into a lot of this stuff because you you two have been together for a long time, right? I mean, yeah. weren't you didn't you know each other from high school? That's true. Yeah, and there was several several years of uh,
1: yeah long distance and different schools, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But um, yeah, grad school was good, and it, she had a fellowship at CU there. I was self sufficient. With her fellowship, especially she had enough money to buy plane tickets. <laughs> so um, but you know, you're also able to be productive. So yeah, it was it was the end of the masters. Yeah, she actually came and, and moved to Tennessee and the rest the rest is history, I guess, like you say. And then and she formed the Kaiser Trio there with Lalo's wife Julie Davila, uh, and then Julie Hill. And at one Point they were all in Murfreesboro. You know, soon after that, like, we moved closer to Nashville to be closer to that scene, et cetera, et cetera, you know. Uh, but, yeah, they formed that group in the town of Murfreesboro. <laughs> they were there, yep. um, which is great. One thing that I think is interesting about that era at MTSU, and, and Lalo has blown that program up now, you know, a similar size school like to where I'm at with UTEP and now he's got forty plus, maybe maybe close to fifty now percussion majors. And something four or five adjuncts teaching. And I know they've got like eighty people coming out to audition to the drum for the drum line. I don't know how many they're putting on the field. Billy Doddla's running that and Lalo. Um and I think Brian Mueller is helping out in that area as well, but when I was there, I was running the drum line. At one point, there were 60, we got to 60 members, and Terry, Jolly and then Craig, they, they were still not about, like, turning people away, so, you know, huge front ensemble, huge segments. There was 18, we did 18 cymbals at one point, and just scored and staged them as three units of six, and one, like Lalo would come and teach one unit a dance, you know, and one might be like holding ride cymbals for the snares and the others like have a part and then you could cycle that through. So everybody got like a piece of the action. And I like invented a multi-percussion segment with some choral instruments, some and bongo and whatever mounted something. Um, but good times in terms of growth there. But when I arrived, it was such an interesting time. They had, they had the previous year, the drum line, the, the university drumline was all, I think basically like they were all from Mystique and had played together the, the wonderful progressive uh, high-level indoor group and in marching drum corps. So they were like, this is the year before I get there. You write anything you want for them and they play great and have a great time. Things change. They graduate. When I arrive, I miss band camp because of the Crossman tour. I get there; they've had a week at least of rehearsal, and like they're not, they can't play their street beat. <laughs> and there's like there's like the center from Mystique and Blue Coats, and then there's like a guy in the snare line that shouldn't have any sticks. Like the level was so disparate just at that period, and it was big, and there was like. A total different, like, way of going about things from my East Coast and um, UMass mentality. So there was all these, like, uh, whatever, juxtaposition, right? Like, different philosophies, levels, skill levels, awareness, you name it. And there was friction in that. Like, I would go, is this what we do here? We don't learn our music? I'm new to town, <laughs> I'd go, all right, put your drums down, and let's just reflect on the fact that we can't play our music. But I'm only saying this because there's light at the end of the tunnel. Through our efforts, we put time in, is what we did. And we like put Friday nights in, and we just went, and we all came and put the time in. It's a collective effort of talents, of course. And by doing that, you know, we found common ground, we made progress, we learned the music, you know, adapted the music, and it, it was quite successful, and you know, we built on it. It was a fun, a fun and uh, educational period for me. And great to see that program, percussion program, continue to grow. There's incredible people teaching here with Lalo now. And of course, now you can go, it's like a 20 year period, and the students, of the time are now professors, touring musicians, you name it, and it's amazing. You know, it's just fun, fun to see
0: your former students, your peers, et cetera, and all their successes. When you're there, you get do you get hired on? Is that that what ends up happening when you're done? Yeah. Was that a? Was that kind of like an in the plan or you're when you were finishing up, you're like, uh, I mean, I could stick around. Like, did you do you remember that that transition from being grad student to faculty?
1: Yeah, I mean, all I can say is, you know, I don't know at what point what was in Lalo's mind necessarily or or the directors, etc. But I do remember him saying I just don't know when it was. I remember him saying, you know, that he wanted for me to, to continue like in that type of position, I mean, he, I would look him as the director of the percussion program, it made sense. He needed somebody to take kind of the lion's share of the marching percussion. Yeah. So initially I stayed on doing that with the writing and, and managing and rehearsing and also in particular drum set lessons. And then, just over time, that just expanded to total percussion and drum set and the drum line, and then started some world music as, as well, doing some West African and Brazilian battery
0: things. You know, when you were faculty there, do you? Is there a point where, because you're, I assume you're you're doing this all adjunct, right? That that whole time. Yeah. Is, is there a cap? Did they say like okay we, you cannot teach anymore because we have to we cannot like like on the on the, the school side is like you have to actually stop now
1: yeah yeah that's exactly right and uh, i know that can be it's different everywhere you go at there at that time it was like nine hours was the maximum for ad and then but with the van they did it like in a stipend separately so was whatever that was, kind of a double adjunct situation. Yeah.
0: That's good. That, that's good for you.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, good for me. And still enough time to be busy outside. I did do some more teaching, depending on the time period, with um, some high schools and some writing music for other groups. Some, some kind of one-out things, starting to do clinics and state day of percussion things and, and of course, some... Playing in town and
0: out out of town, so yeah, a, a busy time. How long? And how long again did you did you do that position? Nine years. That, and this is nine years after you finished the masters.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, still. I know it's still almost sort of like hard to believe, even to say that 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 went on like that. But we, you know, Amy was there, and we had. You had community between the Jabulas and outside, you know, and uh, we had work steady work, a great place to be in the music scene, uh, in and in a home base for doing all of the other things. So, we had a good life, and then we our children were born Nathan and Kira. And as, as I told you, and it is funny to say, you know, if things were getting. On the teaching side at MCSU, so fruitful, that that was what real. I was kind of doing 50-50, right? Like, I'm teaching, and then I'm playing, but I'm so invested, like, in the teaching that I'm not going, let's go tour. I never wanted to. never wanted to be a country touring drummer, You know, which is one of the options you could pursue there. Um So, yeah, things were just so fruitful on the teaching side at MTSU, thriving, the opportunities had diversified, um, that that was, uh, it was very fulfilling, and I wanted to do more of that and be upwardly mobile, of course, on the business side, on the salary side. So, the way, yeah, one of the paths to that is get that terminal degree, so I end up, For that, if you're interested, I looked at, I factored in family since we had the kids. And so I I looked into some options in New England where my family is, and I was very interested in Jim Campbell's program. I had known him, you know, it's it's a close proximity, Nashville and Lexington, and one of my UMass college roommates had gone there, Chad Wyman, he was a snare drummer with the Cadets, my roommate, he had gone to the University of Kentucky for his master's, when I headed to MTSU, so I'd gone up to visit and gone to some of the guest artist programs, like with Mike Spiro would go to Kentucky. So I'd been up and met Jim, and he was friendly. So I kind of had a, a friendship with him, and through the, through the family of Taisha Trio and Julie Hill ended up doing her Doctorate and I just kind of ended up sort of knowing at least all the folks that were doing their doctorates with Jim. I understood that program and the value of it and how he treated his doctor doctorate folks as, as faculty and mentoring. I was very interested in that. Also looked at IU. There was proximity to my in-laws who were in Carmel, Indiana, by Indianapolis. And I knew Steve Howe, and then he had heard me play, so there was a connection there. Um, and then it turned out, like Spyro, too, while I was looking, he was being hired on board at Indiana, who, of course, I had this long standing interest in Latin music and Brazilian music. And ironically, I had met. Yeah, I had met Michael Spiro in Bloomington, Indiana because of my time in Star of Indiana. And we were housed there, and they brought Michael to create the middle section of the Marimba Spiritual production that yeah. did become part of Blast. Michael was involved in it. So I'd met him in Bloomington, Indiana, and then it's like, I don't remember how many years exactly we end up back there working together and, and working closely in mentorship. So all those factors kind of drew me to IU and I got a good offer.
0: Now, when you are teaching at MTSU, was there any moment or something that ha- Was there anything that was like a specific moment or a thing where you realized you're like, you know what? This is actually what I want to do. I have to get the next thing. I mean, because you, it sounds like you had or did you feel like you had maxed out everything you could do at MTSU and realized that you can't actually go to the next level or it's un, extremely unlikely? I should put it.
1: I, I don't remember a eureka moment. You know, there's also like, yeah, you just get a maybe it's time to hurt some pains. Right. Like new input. Like I need to grow. Right. So, yeah. It wasn't. I would say, yes, I felt like I'd maxed out. We were at a peak, or I'd maxed out what that could be, not due to limitations of the students or you know the talents, right? Just the, okay. the, the composite, and I, I was ready for a change and new input in scene. and seeing um, growth and the professional development, upwardly mobile side of it, and I've known, of course, other people who said, "Yeah, you, you know, you really do. You maybe get the doctorate because you need that credential, but your musicianship really grows a great deal." And uh, no, I sure agree. You go a lot. As long as you survive it and, and it doesn't kill you, you thrive.
0: Yeah, yeah, completely. What was it like to go back to school? Uh, after being out as a student for so long.
1: Yeah, um, that's challenging. It really is. I was 35 myself when I started that. I wouldn't recommend it, but I do. My philosophy is, you know, we all make our own path. So there's not a correct path. I really do believe that. You can recommend paths and you can, you know, relate to, your uh, Padawans, your experience, but people really do have to make their own paths. So I don't regret it. And it, that's what happened. Um, yeah. So it's challenging for sure. And the most challenging part is just the being a student and being included, addressed as a student. <laughs> yeah. and, and even... I think the other students, uh, and, at, and at Indiana, the, the level is very high, you know, musicianship
0: experience. It's a gigantic school, too.
1: Yeah, the level, like just even within the percussion community, you know, yeah. like they're talented people. Now, there's still, keep them alive to 25, I meaning there's still levels of maturity you, you find around 25. And then at 30 and 40 and 50. And, but um, yeah, you have to be careful because or I had to just take care and be patient, you know, and sort of do my thing. You contribute, find your place to contribute and lead and you contribute where you can. Um, but in, in the student body's mind, you're also a student. So keep, you know, you have to keep that in mind, regardless of what your resume
0: and what you've done um, the are- scene So at, at that point, you, you come back as a student, um, what kinds of things did you find that your, you obviously talked about the musicianship, you know, is, you know, improves as your, and I would certainly agree to that on, on my end as well. Um, but like, what do you find are the things that you really have to work on considering you've had all of these experiences that you've accumulated over the last 10 to 15 years? And now you're, what kinds of things do you find that you actually need to kind of, gaps you need to fill? Well, what comes to mind easily, with that program, program,
1: there was this this great dream team of particularly four full-time percussion faculty who each are easily at the top in their known field. Not to say any of them were had, were so limited in right, their sure. field, but like Kevin Bobo, an incredible player at anything. Yeah, but but known as a virtuoso on the marimba, and he was doing orchestral percussion and ensembles, but um for, of simplicity in marimba and also his awareness of like stylistic depth, whatever the style of the piece, whether in whether marimba or another instrument, you would just be able to go all in, in in that style and guide you in that way. And Michael, of course, Alpha Cuban and Brazilian music and others, Steve in jazz drums, drum set in general, music in general, teaching, in general, I haven't known what an incredible pedagogue worldwide, a man who didn't finish his undergraduate degree. He was the department in the percussion area. Don Tafoya, a timpanist who, when you hear him play, you would not need to even know what symphony was. You don't have to have an interest in it, and you'll have a spiritual experience listening to and play the symphony. Uh, did I get to everybody? John, Steve, Devin, Michael. So it's just studying with each of them and the, the, the depth, the scope of the, of the depth of it. And then, of course, you take from any mentor, right? You pay attention. To this day, if I hear Lalo Dabula do a clinic, I'm, I have to take notes. it's always a, how did you come up with this? this an incredible teacher. But um, they all exhibit patience. Something I took from Steve and I did a study and watched him teaching his undergraduate students. And he would go, here, read this big band chart. And he'd have the chart and he'd have the audio track and you'd have different types of kits and symbols. And he'd go, read this big band chart and like a great coach. He's talking in their ear, like short, clear instruction. While they're like reading the, the chart, whether it's sight reading or prepared. And then he'd go, okay, here, do this. And then he'd go, now sight read this one. On the other kit, it's a different style. And then he'd go, all right, let's go over the vibraphone. You know, and you're supposed to prepare autumn leaves in solo vibes format and you're Doing voicings built on the third and seventh, and then Steve's at the marimba, and they're playing together. And then, like they kind of get through that. He's coaching them partway, and then he's like, "All right, let's go over here and uh, and now do this uh, coordination study that you were assigned while playing with these funk tracks." That's one of the things he just kept kept his students on their toes and great, like the best coaching type of of approaches. All these guys, one of the things I do a lot is play. I'm always playing with my students. It keeps me playing, which I love. It's at the heart of who I am. It's what I need. And I believe in that model and teaching. Be, you know, uh, walk the talk, be able to do, and then teach. Now, might, might they be able to outdo you at some point in certain areas? Yeah, great, fantastic. In any case, but I think all of them did that. They all played. Don would have two complete sets of symphony, at least, in the documents and the full set of other orchestral instruments for excerpts. You would have three or four different snare drums tuned. John, um, a great teacher, just patience, sharing professional anecdotal stories, but where appropriate, you know, not tangenting, but appropriate, um, yeah. So you learn how to teach, not, you learn know, depth of playing and how to communicate that depth through, through those great musicians. Awesome. Yeah. Did so you... I guess, I guess it's not holes as much as just uh, more
0: depth, you know? Yeah. No, that's 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 great. I mean, that's the time to do it. Honestly, Um, now, so you the whole family moved right to Bloomington. Yeah. So, and because Amy was teaching, right, like in the the school system at that point.
1: That's right. So uh, in Indiana, she did middle school bands in uh, Brown in Nashville, Indiana, Brown County. Yeah, just to. Keep the story interesting, we moved from Nashville and then to, to Nashville, Indiana, which is in the hilly part of Indiana. It's not all corn country. Gorgeous, hilly part of Indiana, um, great mountain biking. And Nashville there, it's like an artist colony, and it's a destination for folks, for especially like fall weekends, the foliage and you know, do foodie things and art type things. So yeah, she was doing middle school band and still working with Keisha. Um, We could both pick up symphonic gigs in that region, you know, and I continued to do playing and doing whatever, state day of percussion type of things, some side work in town in terms of, I mentioned like working for the marching band a little bit. So I kept some work going that way.
0: I mean, I assume that there wasn't, or was there as much? I mean, or did you? I mean, obviously, you weren't there as long to kind of, you know, I guess get as connected as you were in Nashville.
1: Um, I was there quite a few years, but I, um, I think I enjoyed working out of town as much as in town. There's there's a decent amount of work, but part of it is people come and go, so you form a great a trio, and then. People are moving on, you know. And Bloomington, such a great, we loved it there. It was a great college town, you know, food, arts, huge university. I think it was around 50,000 at that time and, like, half of it's grad students. And people come back, you know. And so it, it bred great schools, like, for the kids. Um, but it's still a little bit small, so then if the music in town was saturated by novices, you know, like, yeah, this band, like the the band, the pianist and band leader went to Africa once, and he's a, you know, economics professor, so uh, it is what it is, but so you're competing, you have top musicians who are faculty and students and combinations of, of those. But you're competing for the gig at the park with also you know, the novice band and the community group and, and all of that. So a small saturated market. Um, but there are also like regional symphonies, a number of them around there, um, all populated by you know professionals and IU students, so excellent groups. That was a the thing. There are some nice groups that during that time. Um, Almir Quartz was a Brazilian musician, played mandolin, plays mandolin and and guitars, who came from Campinas, Brazil, outside of Sao Paulo. He came to IU to finish his doctorate. And so he's there. Uh, Tom Walsh, who's heading the jazz area, saxophonist. We formed a group. Tom, Almir, Mike McStackie, the great percussionist. Myself. I think Natalie Point probably was playing bass in that group, who I still play with in the trio. So that went on, you know, for a year or a half, and then, like, Almir went back to Brazil. Uh, but things like that, you know, got to happen. And I've, I worked with Bernard Woma for several years. So he came, I think, just a year after me, to, like do a master's, and he ended up doing two masters, three or four years, and still still kept Bloomington as a home base for a while, because, of course, Bernard was a musical ambassador for Ghana, uh, running Dodra Music Center outside of Accra, and uh, Saku Dance troupe who would tour around the states and the world, so he was doing international and national events. With Bloomington as a home base, I had spent some time in Ghana a month with Pascal Young. Um, but more than that, it's, you know, my drum set skills and clave understanding, you know, I could accompany Bernard, with whatever he asked me to play, I could do, and then he could play virtuosically. And I was able to give him that, that support, you know, and knew how to lean in rather than get thrown. So I accompanied him a lot. Learned a lot. Learned a lot about culture uh, in Ghana and West African culture through time spent with him. Really valuable time. And we worked. So that was was another side gig, side hustle there during the Bloomington time. Did you have a specific assistantship there? Yeah. Yeah. It's a graduate teaching assistantship. They call it, a, at IU, they call it a associate instructor. And the things I did included assisting Michael with the, particularly the Brazilian class, which was like Samba Battery and some Candomblé, some Maracatu from the north of Brazil. He had me, right away, he had that be my baby. I hadn't been to Recife, but I had studied the music and made arrangements from studying the contemporary groups. So that was something he made my baby right away. We also had Scott Kettner come in to teach us and educate us. So I did that group. We all taught non-major drum set lessons, one of the standard duties, uh, the methods class yeah and given my maturity as a not as a thirty five year old John, before I became the chair, he asked me to kind of run the AI. typically, there was four of us, and that just meant uh, that just merely meant was a clerical job in terms of helping distribute the our assignments, who had to do how many lessons and that kind of thing. Yeah, that was that was part of it. I ran some special projects, like I'd be, um, I didn't really want to play with the student orchestras a lot, and really just the level was high, but it was uh, but this, the time commitment, and in particular, it was, you know, that being a student, but they did, it's very organized there, but they would do seven rehearsals per cycle, mm-hmm. you know, in a professional group. Maybe you're doing three. It's not. You know, I just couldn't take seven rehearsals of the same music. And that that was understood. You know, Don really understood that. In fact, he asked me, he's like, what did you think? Too many rehearsals? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> 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 so I'd do special, you know, I'd have assignments. I did play with the, uh, what did they call it? Contemporary music ensemble or new music ensemble a couple of times. And, um. We do like a ballet, like it was a ballet where we just did percussion, not percussion, but a, a live group rather than canned music. I think it was Lenos, um, And so we did, I was like the principal
0: for that. For and no drumline?
1: Uh, not as part of, no, I didn't. That was just contractual outside of that. I just let, uh, at some point, even maybe if you're Steve Houghton, we just let them know, and at IU it's almost like, you know, like the band's office is on, like in a different building than the orchestra, you know. but um, and the marching band's like the other end of campus. Some some separation there, some degree, but um, yeah, you know, we just let. And Joel Brainerd was running the drum line. We just let them know, hey, I'm I'm here. I'm not looking for anything major, you know, but if I can be of help. Writing a tune, whatever. So over the time that I was there, like I was telling you, I just had different, a couple of different roles over two or three years. You know, wrote a few charts, and that one season I was like the Monday night snare attack, which was great. You know, it's like a not a major uh, responsibility, a simple responsibility, and time with the kids, which is the best part. That's always the fun, funnest part interaction with the performer students. Yeah. Gotcha. So, cool. you know, we've covered a lot of the basis of how I was kind of piecing, you know, my financial life and mm-hmm. active playing life together.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, so, I mean, a key thing that came out of that too was I formed the trio, Batuki trio, with Natalie Boink, Bass and Jamal Baptiste, who plays piano and he's in Aruba, I think still right now. He's from Aruba, which turns out to be a real nexus of cultures and music. Tremendous player having come up through it's like a gospel player learning by doing. He did a lot of a lot of learning by doing, great ears, great feel. Montuno, clave, jazz—you name it—and he—he came. He did an undergraduate and a master's in the jazz area, and ended up doing. Now he's finishing a PhD in ethnomusicology. And this is Natalie too. They're—I'd say—they're say they're smarter and more interesting than me. This is my Latin jazz trio. Our Latin jazz trio. The CD we recorded is called Transparency. And now we're planning the next recording around next spring. And that's another project I'm able to fund through my moving to assistant professor this year. Um, But that group, we formed there in Bloomington, started playing in town, then out of town, performed at PASIC. I did a a contemporary samba jazz drum set clinic at PASIC in 2016, and then we did some Jazz Education Network Conventions we're doing this January again, and since then we just get together two or three times a year and do like a string of clinics and concerts, Um, so we keep that project going because there's a great friendship, great musical chemistry there.
0: And you fit it in like you wanted
1: to. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, um, that's another thing I'm excited about. And it's it's great to have the support from the university that helps make that happen.
0: Yeah, yeah for it's sure.
1: It's expensive, and I think there's enough there to to put it with a label and get some distribution.
0: Yeah. Definitely. Okay, well, I finish up with a segment called "Random Ask Questions." Cool. All right. So first question is what, uh, an issue An issue in percussion education that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts. I have a couple of thoughts. I don't feel like I'm
1: hitting on the most. Maybe, maybe I start talking and they'll come to me. Sure. Yeah. Uh, since we're doing the, the band camp right now with the drum line, it's going great, but, um, even with some of the best programs and the best players that are in their experience level, what the competitive marketing band environment seems to do as a byproduct, it, it's the repetition and the well-informed, well-meaning instructors and staff and text giving all the, the great information there's not enough facilitate the students to find the information themselves. So they're wait they're waiting, right? So they they come to us and they're they're not going. This music is calling for a crescendo. Why don't I do that? And they're waiting for you to tell them for to make their sticks do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that kind of thing, along with like the rate of retention. That's one of our biggest challenges, and
0: we're showing them. So, um, wait, wait, do you mean retention of students or retention of music or both? Yeah, right, so in the moment,
1: specifically retention of the material, okay, and for the moment, specific to the marking activity, they're just accustomed to repetitions in class over a long period of time for that one program, that one. Competitive show. None of this is anything I'm opposed to. It's just saying this is a byproduct, right? Not philosophizing against these activities by okay. any means. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's what we do, and with college band. Is and if, again, we talked about different settings, but but it's we've got to assimilate the material like immediately, mm-hmm. <laughs> immediately. And of course my own experience, I like think I told you about, I'm standing next to Nick Angeles and we're like we're memorizing it before the first rep. You know, when you're in rehearsal and you're chunking, we're looking at it and on the first rep we're looking straight ahead. We're not reading it over and over. So those are extremes, but so we're just we're teaching them, you know, and I I said it's like to one of my uh, assistants I go it's like you're opening a book and you're not showing them this is what it is they don't know we're teaching them how to memorize quickly and use devices and talk yourself through it different approaches other than just do it over and over because that's not going to get you to memorization in one day you know? <laughs> so that kind of thing is a challenge uh, yeah, and then actually I've already kind of hit on the other one. Is like when they just, they wait. And when they're not curious, I think, and again, so you show them the way, that's your job, right? Teach them to be curious if they're not. Some people will be, you know. But musicians have to. Be. You have to be going, what can I do to make this better? That's another thing I teach culturally in my, in my studio. I put it this way. Make everything that you, because, make things better because you're there, whatever it is. That might mean because you prepared, right, or you did your homework, or you arrived on time, or you had a great attitude, or whatever it is, or because you took your paper to the writing center to make it better, but you're there is contributing. Um, but you have to be curious to be able to do that, <laughs> So if, if they're showing up, some kids come here and audition as a, as a destination. Others, because it is, the they want to be a band director and this is the program that's in school, that's in town, right? And that's OK. I mean, I've heard some great professionals say that that's what they did. I, I've heard people go, well, I went to the University of Kentucky because it was right there. And I heard it was good or something. They didn't they hadn't done their homework and didn't realize they were stepping into like one of the best places they could be. Um, but that does get me that that they themselves, no or their band director, no one is telling them that there's a Google. And you could like Google UTEP percussion or like Google Andy Smith, because maybe if you're saying you want to come. You know, to my program, you should be saying because in part, either that you want to study with Andy Smith or at least that it's acceptable to you to study with Andy Smith, right? Like you're you're putting a lot into a four year commitment if you haven't even checked it out. Right. And I think that can that can translate to a more microcosms too. You're just showing up to Ensemble for someone to tell you what to do. So,
0: curiosity, man. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and it's always good to have, I appreciate when guests uh, refer to themselves in the third person. I think that's a, also, a, I enjoy that. <laughs> cool.
1: Well, for me, okay, around, I think around year 40 of your life. Mm-hmm. Right? Is you this this is just a common occurrence? I think for humans, you really start to accept yourself slash know yourself. Yeah, and that's important, and that's part of where that comes from. Is like, you know, because artists and musicians, we can really struggle, right? With because things are so important to us, we want to do excellent, and that can lead to all kinds of self doubt or you name it. Right, but you just gotta whatever it is, yeah. Anxiety it has a purpose, right, to drive you to take action. So do that, and then whether it's an interview or a performance or just your lecture that day, all you can give is what you can give that day. Right. right? So yeah, at some point, uh, Ben Wallen was in town. Is it Ben Whalen? He directed, I think it's Wayland, right? I've, he,
0: I've he only was, heard I've only heard people say Ben Wallen. I've never okay. heard him say
1: anything. Okay, ben Wallen. Yeah. So he's here, he's an incredible person, and we were talking and at some point I said, Yeah, if you if, if you hire Andy Smith, you get Andy Smith. And they only mentioned Ben because he loved that. He was like, That's awesome. And we're We're laughing like, I would love if that'd be awesome if that became a thing, right? Like everyone, people who have no idea who I am are saying that with my name in it because it's like a model.
0: Nice. But you get you. They get you. Yeah. All right. We're going to veer into some different directions here. First question. Next question is, has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? (laughs) Well, a little, okay,
1: a little one, nice and quick. I guess La, it's Lalo who would go, apparently I did that. I don't know if I still do, some kind of
0: a. Oh, the, like the shrug emoji kind of thing.
1: Kind of a this, right.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, yes, I guess Lalo nailed
1: that one. I'm sure there have been some other equipment. There you go. You're I mean,
0: uh, right. Your
1: kids don't do impressions of you? My own children, not that that I'm aware of. My my students probably when I'm not around. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Nice.
0: What is the most impractical item of clothing you own?
1: That's one thing I've been pretty good at, actually, to Marie Kondo. If I don't use it, I get rid of it. I don't know. You got me on that one. i throw away shoes you know if i don't use it
0: i don't have it you don't have like a like a high school marching jacket just hanging around somewhere i don't i got rid of those
1: okay (laughs) i mean i even got rid of like my i had a star of indiana jacket i don't (laughs) have it you know i went i don't wear this yeah you know i like said goodbye to it or whatever Like. What I value is the experience, not this jacket that I don't use. Yeah. They call them rainbow bright jackets. <laughs> mine, mine was an age out jacket, so it was white with rainbow cuffs and, and this, and I wasn't going to wear it. So some yeah. people make pillows out of them and stuff, and that's cool. Yeah. I can't think of anything. Gotcha. Weird. Or so. yeah. <laughs> boring in that way, but I try to create space in my life where I can. I still have a laundry list to do. <laughs> what I have is like crates of binders. Like I have all the all the scores that like you know, from Hannah and other things and and other musics. And yeah, I want to scan them all and put yeah. them on a
0: on a thumb drive. Right. <laughs> I got you. But I already did my clothes. Oh, okay, fair enough. Well, I was gonna say Star of Indiana. That would be a collector's item now. <laughs> what is a great movie and what is a terrible movie? Oh, God.
1: I'm not going to impress you with the high art movies that I watch. Oh, I can't wait. All I right. think my, No, I mean, I think my favorite movie is Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, all right. I, I kind of, I appreciate like technology and some sci-fi and to me that movie nailed it with the, hue, the sci-fi and the visual... The humor, you know, great witty humor in, in context, right? Like the silly surface humor in context of saving the universe. You know?
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: great one. And we make my children watch it over and over, and then they go, "We already watched it." <laughs> What's a terrible movie? I don't know. I don't have anything interesting at the moment on that. What do you think's a terrible movie? I could agree with you.
0: <laughs> you know, an old standard I, I would always say is the Love Guru, which was <laughs> the which was the movie that Mike Myers made after he finished making all of the um Austin Powers movies. And it just it was just it just was really, really bad. Well that's
1: yeah, okay, you're hitting the nail on the head because the worst movies are probably SNL. Character or SNL actors movies, and some There's, of the best ones are like Elf is one of the best movies. Yeah, definitely. But also the same, some of the same actors movies are the worst movies. So. Yeah, <laughs> Will. Uh, but David David Spade, I
0: think he had some terrible movies that I probably didn't watch all the way through. Yeah. Well, the it, yeah, I mean, I think the the two he did with Chris Farley, uh, the. Tommy Boy and, and Black Sheep are both real are good. But yeah, after that. Right. Yeah, so that umbrella and group of that
1: group of people have produced the best and worst movies. Yeah, true.
0: <laughs> That's a good point. What is something that if you were to meet some, this is sort of related, but if you were to meet someone and they'd say, oh, I like this, whatever this is, it's like pop culture or something like that. And you, and for you, that would be like, all right, we're good. Oh. <laughs> what, what, what's that for you? Hmm.
1: Want to say like mentoring individuals, you know, putting value on individuals. Can that be a thing? Sure. Okay. <laughs> then we've got something to talk about, you know. I, I can, yeah, I can really get into. You can get into what, what it is that we do, teaching precaution and mentoring folks and, and how you go about that. I'm excited to join with PAS. I haven't done any committee service in some time, and I've joined the college pedagogy committee mm. that, that Mike Sammons is the chair of. And man, he is a guy that I admire a lot for his intelligence and musicianship. We got to work on a project a couple years ago and just by happenstance and it was like, yes, he's the perfect guy for this and uh, James Doyle was the other awesome. percussionist and it, we it he ended up on it because it was a piece I wrote for flute and percussion and his wife Tracy Doyle was on it and she's like, well, I don't know if you got percussionists but my husband's a percussionist and I'm like, okay. And I look him up and I'm like, he's the perfect guy! With James and Mike because they're tremendous musicians, but can really do it all, can groove, and you know, they can play any music. Not everybody can do those things. So. Yeah, Great chemistry. Mike's just, a, just brilliant, really hard worker, great culture builder. And uh, the people on that committee are tremendous. So looking forward to that. Yeah. And the thing is, coming back, you know, talking about just mentoring individuals—that's the conversation that I'm most excited to be to be in on right now. All right. Uh, what is a favorite book? I've been reading with Rudd's book. On it's called Side by Side, and I think there's a colon and subtitle there. Uh, I think he was a professor of trumpet at Baylor. And the book is about it's about mentoring and culture, studio culture building. So I found that inspirational and also affirming to to go. Yeah, okay, you know I'm working
0: in the right direction. I think this way, or I do some of these things. What is your? I wonder if you have this. What is your go-to karaoke song?
1: I've never done karaoke. So I guess there's not one. <laughs> <laughs> if I need, if I'm uh, driving and I just need to be pumped up, I love to put on the police. Mm. You no, know, and then the, the, the big one, you know, message in a bottle and rock in. And you
0: gotcha. How was how your, um how is your driving with and playing drum fills skills? Are you pretty, pretty solid?
1: I don't uh, advise it, and I, I don't do it, and I was I was keeping a pair of sticks in my car, and I would, would play, like, not, not mindlessly, but like hand development and maintenance on the steering wheel at the stoplight. Mm-hmm. and because I'm committed to my philosophy, you know, driving is like a life or death situation, yeah. I don't trust anybody. So I put the sticks down. and I wouldn't drum and drive. And uh, I happen to buy a new car, and I can't, I, I can't bring myself to damage the steering wheel. So currently, I don't do that. I need that's to find a way. You know, I need to create something. You know that you can attach. That's got a soft lamb's wool, whatever, and then a layer, and then you know gum rubber on there. And yeah, yeah. Then the,
0: then the gum rubber beaded sticks or something. That's good. See, if you develop it, then you got to patent it, and then it's you know
1: a hard sell, though, right? Because then you're selling it, but you're also trying to say, "Don't do this while you're driving. (laughs) Only at stop
0: signs." Right? Yes. Yes.
1: To buy this, you must commit to our ten-day course.
0: Yes. (laughs) Certification.
1: now it's damn right yeah you have to come and stay you know and do the whole inclusive experience Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) nice all right where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to
1: um italy is one yep if it weren't for this pandemic we'd be planning our trips right now (laughs) I definitely want to go back to Brazil. I would like to go to Recife. I want to go back to Sao Paulo. It's awesome for the, the contemporary Brazilian jazz scene. Great city. Uh, I'd like to go to Recife for the Maracatu music. Uh, and I haven't been to Cuba as much as I've been a you know follower and, and interested in music from there. So those are some places. Cool. Very cool. Actually, you know where I most want to go is I want to go to the beach for a week and just wear my bathing suit and sandals and do nothing. There never seems to be time for that. <laughs> I have a cousin in Belize, so that's on my list. Oh, nice.
0: That <laughs> was that, That's the um, – my wife and I were fortunate to go um, – to her, her, her brother. So my brother-in-law has a um, has a lake house in North Carolina, Virginia border, wow. um, and it was awesome. We had a great time, but normally that would be the North Carolina beach would be where we would be going, and and the lake was wonderful. But I'm much more of I need to get my, I need to get my ass kicked by the waves, kind of that's my, that's like what I want to do at the beach <laughs> and nothing and a lot of nothing, but, but body surfing and that kind of stuff. Yeah,
1: I love that too. Yeah. Sign me up for either. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But you know, so often we travel with a gig involved and it's great grateful for that or travel for a family grateful for that too. Yeah. yeah but at some point we just need to meditate and let things kind of fall away. For a few yeah. days. Um, but we'll, I'll take a lake or the ocean as we live in the desert. So <laughs> we, get, we get very excited about water when we see.
0: it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's not, not a lot of water nearby. Just, just some lakes. That's about it. Um, yeah. are, do you have a sports fandom?
1: Not really. No. Um of, I've been been very singular minded in my passion, but uh, uh, the thing I'm participating in is disc golf as of late. Yes. I know it's growing in popularity. I'm not great, but I enjoy it and trying to get better. I'm trying to get more distance out of my backhand drive right now. That's a focus. Mm -hmm. My son, who's 16 in his youth, and he's a gifted and talented mind. He's been absorbing it and he's... He's quite good and he enjoys it, so we go. I do it with him as much as we can. How many courses are near you? Well, in town, they've been growing. There's a culture. So just recently, there's a great um, pro-level competition course. And it's in a beautiful grass, trees, and with the mountains there. It's, it's a great space. There's a couple smaller ones. There's a nice one in a small park. And so it's pretty good now, 25 minutes or so from the house. But in two and a half hours or two and a quarter, and really also in New Mexico, there's really, really great courses. Um, there's more topography there. Um, you're throwing across chasms and, and all. And, uh, it's a bit cooler, different air up
0: there. More, more places for the disc to get lost is what you're saying that is quite true yeah uh,
1: yeah it's true but thankfully i mean it's a relatively inexpensive sport I don't oh yeah sweat it. you know we, we can buy my son disc and you know an expensive one is 20 bucks so right um that and the cool thing about disc golf is it's easy to do traveling yeah
0: you get to seek it out you know wherever you go and that's pretty fun yeah, we were this same trip. Um, I had to drive a little bit. It was a little further of a drive, but when we were visit, when we were at this this lake house, there was a, a, some courses that were like about an hour away, and we, we drove. So I had it in my car, and I went and did, and just this golf by myself. It was it was awesome.
1: Yeah, you get to do the skill. You get the when you're with people. You're, there's that part of it, and. The hiking, like I, just, I like being active. <clears throat> There's like a hiking component to that, and uh, what I really enjoy. So, the, really, the more rigorous, the more I enjoy it. I like uphill. <clears throat> part of my personality, I love. I love road road biking up in Indiana. I, it was the hilly part of the of uh, the state. Yep. and I excelled on on the inclines. And here it's mountain biking in the Franklin Mountains. But uh, I something about my personality. When uh, there's a challenge, I engage, and
0: I like that. Awesome. All right. Uh, what is either the strangest, most bizarre, or funniest performance moment that involves you? <laughs> it's embarrassing. Uh,
1: the The uh, arrogance of youth, I guess, is embarrassing, and there's not enough time to provide all the context for it. So I guess just you know just listener, anyone listening just know that there's yes, probably some youthful arrogance, but there's context. Mm-hmm. everything was okay, but going back to brass theater, there was a performance, so the context is. You're, you're taking drumline of the, of the era, which wasn't cogentry Arts yet, and the influence of the winner, and now you see faces and personality. You're taking that mindset, and they wanted us to be Broadway actors. Right? So that's, a, that's the setup, but we're doing like a Sousa medley and it's basically a standstill. The chorus arc, the brass are like in these huge just arcs on indoor, in, a, in one of the full brass theater shows. So those were in basketball arenas. Mm-hmm. a huge backdrop. The, what would be the front ensemble stationary percussion was in the back. And then for this, it was a medley. We played the battery in the kind of the first third and the last third. And then in the middle was some lighter things with the stationary percussion, So now the issue is we're, we play the battery stuff, and then for the rest, we had tacit. the other players played. So we do, you know, we it's like sticks together and like parade rest or something. Mm-hmm. But like they didn't, the artistic folks, they didn't want that, and they like even, I think they got on us like, well don't be drumline meatheads and just stand there. But they didn't give us, Something to do, so you can read the tension in that, right? So <laughs> myself, myself, and a and a great friend, and incredible teacher, and musician, and driven person. I guess I can name him because we won't. We're not going to jail over this, but Brian Tinkle, the so Brian Tinkle, and I. I think I was the instigator, but he was on board. We go in behind the backstage, and we get surdus that were used in the murmur Spiritual thing. So there's like a high and a low. And they, you know, in a a straight up parade samba, they play a polka, right? And there's another drum that puts like counterpoint in there. Like bing, bong, bing, bong. So we strap on the drums and we do that. And we're parading up and down through the arches in between the brass. (coughs) Yeah. And we're like... (laughs) <laughs> Making it visual and kind of like exaggerating a high step march and being really visual with the stick and like smiling and fanning it up. You know, we're like, you wanted us to perform Broadway, right? And we we leaned hard into it. And this is in a show. This is in a it's not a practice. <laughs> this is the real deal. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm really bearing all there, you know that is, that is a tell on <laughs> story. It's hilarious, and like I say, it's it's embarrassing, but there, you know, there was a the circumstance <laughs> that set it up. Yeah. So, what kind of trouble did you get into? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it was it was one of those things where. Maybe if we had gotten in trouble, it would have been so bad that it wouldn't have been good for anyone. So we didn't. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I think just the Colin Mcnutt and and um, Clark Gardner, they relayed to us like, you know, I think they were amused, they were shocked and amused and understood, and they kind of, wow, guys, you know, and yeah, like Tom was was. I don't know, upset or whatever, but he didn't, Tom didn't speak a word of it to us. You know, they just <laughs> said that Jim Mason, the director, I think he, while he was watching it, he like did like one of these or something. <laughs> <laughs> the next slice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there, there was not an immediate uh, consequence.
0: So you did it again is what you're saying? Or you no, you did, did not. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: If not, no. That's good. <laughs> Interesting. Crazy moment. Definitely a crazy moment that you unearthed
0: with your question. Nice. Great. Okay. And Andy, last question. What one piece of art could be music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything like that has impacted you the most recently?
1: One answer, at least. We discussed already, Alexis C. Lamb's Post-Lightened, um, just be- because of what it does, what it what it brings to the solo repertory, now yeah, br- bridging a gap for the drum set instrument. I think it's a piece that an, uh, a total percussionist who can get on the instrument and learn something through the experience can gain something from in a piece that someone with a drum set ensemble experience can bring that to it, because it's all there. <laughs> so, Not that I wept when I heard the piece. <laughs> not a critique, of course, but it represents something pivotal, I guess, that uh, happens to coincide well with uh, some of my current endeavors. I guess.
0: All right, Andy, we're done. Cool. Well, I enjoyed it. Great questions. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. You're very
1: thorough combining your what you call What did you call them? Random questions. Random asked questions. Yeah. Random asked questions along yeah. with all of the career based questions. Yeah. Yeah, good luck with your editing. I'm, I'm sure you have a system or you're good at it.
0: <laughs> so here's the thing I do look forward to the editing. It becomes very enjoyable for me to do that and to listen back to these conversations. Andy was a pleasure to talk to, and I look forward to seeing what his career holds and hopefully getting to see him and meet him in person soon. This week's rave is the 2005 book, The Education of a Coach, written by David Halberstam and available wherever books are sold. I'm fairly certain that I've talked about David Halberstam on this podcast before. Even though he's no longer been with us since 2007, he may be my favorite nonfiction writer. He's been the author of many incredible books, including The Best and the Brightest, about the Vietnam War buildup through the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, The Children, and an inside look at the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s through the college students who led the charge and an incredible Michael Jordan basketball biography called Playing for Keeps. These are just a few of the great books he's written. I did a count while putting this together and realized that this is the 11th of the 20 nonfiction books of his that I've read. Part of the reason that I'm so fond of Halberstam's writing is that he does such a great job both doing background research on all those involved, but he's also able to find ways to be able to explain the mindset and motivations of everyone that he profiles. He even manages to make villains understandable. It's a great quality in a writer. As a sports fan, particularly of teams in the New York area, my least favorite team is most likely the New England Patriots, which makes it an odd choice for me to read about their unusual and incredibly successful head coach and the subject of the book, Bill Belichick. It should be noted, Bill Belichick was a coach for the New York Jets during a successful run for that team in the late 1990s. But if I was to read about him and learn more about his process and what makes Bill Belichick so successful, then Halberstam was the way to go. The author does incredible work here, both of scene setting, but not too much scene setting. He looks at Bill Belichick's relationship with his father, Steve, who's also a football coach, his unusual path to get to coaching in the pros, having to overcome the doubters who pegged him because he is very small in stature and was not a great football player, his having to work harder and smarter than everyone else, and incredibly relevant to me as a teacher being an example of someone who makes it his mission to learn everything about every aspect of his subject area. And Halberstam tells the story in a relatively short for him, 270 plus pages or so. Very readable, really concise, and extremely effective. And showcasing Halberstam at his best, check out The Education of a Coach. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, and please leave a comment and a rating there. You can also find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at petezambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com and I'll catch you next time. Until then.